0: Scripture reading this evening will be from Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter five. And we'll be reading verses thirteen through twenty six. Galatians five, thirteen to twenty six. Give ear, for this is the word of the Lord to you, his people. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ. Freedom from sin, freedom from the law, and now freedom to love. We ask that we would take that freedom and we would use it for your glory. In your son's name and by his spirit we pray. Amen. You ever sat down to try to read through the Old Testament book of Exodus. It can be a little bit of a jarring read on your first way through. The first half is this really inspiring, kind of epic story of Israel being being saved from slavery in Egypt. And then you get about halfway through, and the second half is this long list of rules, all this minutia about how you're supposed to live in the ancient world. Now this has led some modern interpreters, mostly non-believing interpreters, to say that actually the first half and the second half of Exodus are actually two different documents. It's some sort of hodgepodge of history and laws that have been mixed together in one book. Maybe it was stitched together later on for some sort of political agenda. They always seem to also kind of love the first part of that book. Oh, it's freedom, it's throwing off tyranny but they're not so happy about the second part. They're not so much into all of those rules. I wonder if there's, however, a a different way, a more natural way to read the book as it's written, where Exodus kind of gives us the model for understanding the idea of freedom that Israel experienced when they left Egypt, when they left their slavery. That true freedom is not only being freed from something, from evil, but it's also being freed to something, to the good. You see, Israel was freed from slavery in the exodus, but then they were also freed to worship and to love God through the Old Testament law. The exodus has this dual nature of freedom, but it's not just for Israel, it's for us as well. It's for all of us now in Christ. You see, the gospel frees us from sin and it frees us to love The gospel frees us from sin, and it frees us to love. Now throughout the first five, uh, four and a half chapters of Galatians, Paul has been really hammering home on this idea that the Old Testament law is no longer how we express our worship and our love for God in a covenantal sense. Because Jesus has come, we have a new covenant. There's a new arrangement about how we relate to God. We have a new relation with him the old testament law was good it was holy it was the way israel was supposed to relate to god back then but now an even better way has come because jesus and the new age have come this freedom from christ is a freedom from sin and it's also paul says a freedom from that old way now the galatians are probably a lot like us they hear the idea of freedom and they only think freedom from all this talk about freedom from the law means Now I get to do whatever I want. That's probably how we would have responded if we had just heard the gospel like they did. Now it's true that Christians are free from sin, and that they are not bound to the law as a covenant, as a way to relate to God. But it's equally true that they are free to finally worship God and love their neighbors as God always intended. The gospel frees us from sin and frees us to love. So Paul kind of wants to nip this wrong thinking right in the bud immediately off the bat in verse 13. In the first half, he says, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The call of the gospel is a call to become free, to come out of slavery. But this freedom, Paul says, is not an opportunity for your flesh to run wild. We've got to remember here what Paul means when he talks about the flesh throughout his letters, and especially here in the letter to the Galatians. He's not just talking about our physical bodies. At the most basic level, when Paul says the flesh, he kind of means the system of the old world. Everything that was infected with sin and death before Jesus came. The flesh kind of means that time period before Jesus came and brought the new covenant, But it's also kind of a realm, a world where uh, before Jesus and that continues today where sin still has power. And it also is our involvement with that realm. So really maybe we can boil it down and say that the flesh is anything that's not connected with the new creation of Jesus and the Spirit. Anything that tends towards decay and death is still connected to the flesh. And that's why Paul uses that term flesh. Because... That's true of our bodies, isn't it? Our bodies still decay. They're still on the way towards death. Flesh like uh, flesh, and anything like it in the spiritual world and in the social world will also tend to decay and die. So Paul says don't let this freedom from sin be an opportunity for that old world type of living to creep back in. Now, word he uses opportunity there is like getting a foot in the door taking a beachhead, or uh, or the flesh almost envision it uh, establishing a base of operations to continue moving forward. He says, you've been freed from the old covenant, from Israel's way of interacting with God. That does not mean anything goes. That would just actually be another version of slavery. Remember in the, the last two chapters, I know it's been a few months since I was here and we were looking at Galatians, but previously in Galatians 3 and 4, Paul says, if you go back to the law or if you go back to uh, uh, your sin, that's just another form of slavery. Real freedom, he says, is to be freed to serve one another. Again, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now to us, in our modern American context, this sounds completely counterintuitive. I can't be free if I'm serving someone else. This shows us how much we think of freedom as only being freedom from something. Pharaoh in the Exodus was bad. Sin is a bad master. But you know who else is a bad master? Us. We are bad masters. If we think Jesus came to just remove all the restraints, we've just re-enslaved ourselves to our own sinful desires. I'll tell you somebody who knew this really well maybe somebody you wouldn't think of, Bob Dylan. He has that popular song, You Gotta Serve Somebody. He runs through kind of every station in life, every different type of person and every different type of uh, uh, way of life, and at the end of each section, what does he say? But you gotta serve somebody. That's exactly what Jesus and the apostles are talking about, or uh, what the apostles are talking about when they call themselves slaves of Jesus. You may have been freed from sin, you may have been freed from that old world, but you are still a servant of God. They've been freed from sin, and now they are bound to Christ. Now, most of Galatians is kind of saying, okay, this is how you're not supposed to use the law. This is the wrong way to think about the law. It's a, we don't use it to establish our relationship or our value with God. But now Paul's going to give us some really good, positive teaching on what the law is for in verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting here. Where's Paul quoting from? From the law. From Leviticus 19.18. Where the Old Testament law itself tells us how to kind of understand itself. It's the, the law's own interpretation of itself. So how do we fulfill the law with love if we're not under the law? We're not, remember, under the law as a covenant, as a way of relating to God. It's not how we interact with him, but the law is still God's word to us. It reveals his heart. It reveals his priorities. But what Paul is talking about here is this big difference between doing the law and what he says, fulfilling the law. Before, if you were circumcised, before Jesus came, you must do the law and relate to God through it. But that was only for Israel, and that was only before Jesus came. But now, Paul says, we fulfill the law. We bring out its fullest meaning. Everything that the law was actually finally meant to be, Christians actually get to do. We get to realize the law's full potential. We get to accomplish its main goal. And what does the law itself say that main goal is? Love. To love one another. This is how we fulfill the law, by loving our neighbor as ourselves. There'll be be more specifics of what that looks like in the New Covenant later, but even in Leviticus, this is what's happening. This, this, uh, This call to love your neighbor as yourself comes at the end of a section that deals with personal relationships. Right before this verse, it talks about not taking advantage of the poor, not slandering others, not showing favoritism in court, not bearing a grudge against your brother. These are all concrete examples that the law is giving of what it means to love your neighbor, as yourself. To love your neighbor means to care for their well-being just as much as you care for your own. So it seems like this was uh, kind of the opposite, though, of what was going on in Galatians. Paul addresses that in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. I don't think that description of biting and devouring is too much of an exaggeration. Um, if you've ever read any kind of ancient history, you know anything about the Greco-Roman lifestyle in society. It was really even worse than today when we think of kind of a dog-eat-dog world. It's often referred to by historians as a honor-shame culture. You were either on the ascendant, you were being honored, or you were being torn down and you were being shamed. The only way to get ahead was to tear other people down there was this kind of constant competition with everyone that you were around to move up in the world. So what Paul is really presenting here is two different ways to live, two different community identities. Either you care for everyone in your community the same as you care for yourself, and then the whole community protects and provides for each other, or you only care about yourself, and then you bite and devour and scratch and claw over the backs of others to get ahead. And sooner or later, Paul says, what's going to happen? You're just going to consume each other and no one will get ahead. Well, I don't think that honor and shame dynamic ended with the Greco-Roman world. We bite and devour today. Sounds a lot like how you advance in, in the modern world. We need to be watching out that we are not consuming our peers. It sounds a lot like what happens when people try to climb the corporate ladder today, do whatever it takes to get ahead. Even more, sadly, it sounds a lot of like what happens in some churches, in, in church culture. Rumor and gossip can implode and torpedo any ministry in no time. And the pursuit of selfish power can destroy a community just like that. If the Lord protected your church from this, you should be thankful. But we can never think that it's that far away from us. We always need to be watchful for that backbiting and going after others attitude in our church. Now, the opposite is, not, is to love, not just to love one another, but Paul says to love each other as ourselves. Jesus calls this the second greatest commandment. He paraphrases it elsewhere as, treat others as you want to be treated. Now, the standard here is not just to be nice, not just to compromise every now and then, but to love, love everyone else as you love yourself. To treat them the way you wish they treated you. Now, this conflict of, of um, uh, if, if there's a conflict of kind of a, over a new project on the ministry team that you're part of, of course, you shouldn't scheme uh, or try to be passive aggressive to get your own way. But you also don't just give half effort if your idea isn't chosen. You work extra hard to make sure it's successful, even if it's not what you think is best. And if you disagree on a decision that your elders or the deacons make, Of course, you shouldn't kind of whisper behind their back and try and do something else. You don't even just ignore what they're doing. You ask them, you go to them, you share your concerns, and then you get on board and do whatever it takes to make the church successful. The gospel has freed us from biting, from devouring, from consuming each other, and it has freed us to love each other as we love ourselves. Now, Paul has a, a name for this mode of life of where we love our neighbors in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This idea of walking by the Spirit is more than just the physical action of walking. It's the idea of a lifestyle. This is kind of even a a, a way of being. It's almost become a cliche in kind of Christian, Christian terms and Christianese when you ask someone, hey, how's your walk going? You know what they mean, right? So walking by the Spirit is having a life that is empowered, a life that is controlled by the priorities of the Holy Spirit. When I hear this, I think of kind of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So walking by the Spirit then is the exact opposite of walking by the flesh in verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So again, we've got to remember, keep this at the front of our minds, the flesh is that system of the old world, the things that are inflict, infected with sin and death. Now, this is anything that is not connected with the new creation, with Jesus and the Spirit. So the Spirit then represents the new age and life in Christ. The flesh and the Spirit are mortal enemies. They are locked in a battle. And the battlefield is you and your life. And the battle is why Christians still have a mixed wants and a mixed desires and something a fight going on in our heart because you are united to christ by faith you are in the realm of the spirit but you still live in this old world in the in the flesh too so we experience these opposing desires of flesh and spirit and the spirit stops us he holds us back he restrains us from giving in to our flesh but the flesh stops us from doing and going full bore into the spirit because we still have that remaining in us But the battle, Paul says, is not a stalemate. This is not one that's going to end in a tie. Actually, the deciding victory has already been won. Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Remember here that the law, like we said so many times, for Israel, before Jesus came. And it's connected with that old world. It's the way to relate to God under the old world. So if you are not under law... You're also not under the flesh. If you trust in Christ, then you are in the Spirit. You are not under the flesh. The Spirit's desires in your heart will win. The flesh's desires will lose more and more and more as your life goes on. Now, I've, I've used this analogy a lot. Maybe you've heard it before. But the, kind of this fight between the flesh and the Spirit is, is similar to D-Day in World War II we look back at history now, we can see that when the Allies took Normandy, that was kind of the decisive victory. Was there still a long series of battles? Was there still a lot more ground that needed to be conquered? Yes. They had to fight all their way to Berlin to take down the Nazis. But eventually, that was going to happen. The decisive victory was won. And the same is true for us. Christ struck the decisive blow against the flesh at the cross. We still battle the flesh. We still have to embrace the spirit throughout our life. There's a long way to go, but the victory has been secured. So how do we know which are the desires of the flesh and which ones are the spirit? So Paul says, hey, how about I give you a list? Verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Idolatry, sorcery. enmity, strife jealousies fits of anger rivalries dissensions divisions envy drunkenness orgies and things like these as i warn you as i warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of god when you when you look at a community and the relationships of the old world it is clear that they are driven by the flesh the activities of biting and devouring other people are, are pretty obvious paul says If you look at that list, uh, the first three are kind of a group. They go together. Sexual immorality is any sort of non-marital sexual activity. Impurity is kind of anything that's unclean, any sort of corrupt sexual acts. And sensuality is any sort of uncontrolled sexual desires. The next two are also a group. Idolatry is just false worship, false gods, or even the use of idols. And sorcery is trying to get power from the demonic forces, from the realm of Satan. And then there's just that long list of what we could call antisocial or socially destructive behaviors. Enmity, that's kind of undue conflict, war and fighting with your neighbor when it's not necessary. Strife is embracing discord and any sort of violent competition. Jealousy is a, a certain form of partisanship, hating other people for their success. A fit of anger is rage, uncontrolled sorts of outbursts. Rivalries is a selfish ambition where you're only looking out for yourself dissensions is fighting and getting into factions and kind of only listening to your own echo chamber divisions is breaking up things that should be brought together you're trying to separate good things that the Lord has brought together and envy is a, a resentment a spite of holding a grudge against the other people even if they have hurt you and then the final two I think are also a pair drunkenness, too much alcohol or any other sort of losing control and orgies, any sort of gluttony or excess, excessive partying and feasting and Paul says, if I didn't list something that covers you, he adds, and things like these. So everyone is now part of the list. Now, this is not the first time the Galatians have heard this list. Look at what he says in the second half of 21. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This kind of preaching against these sins was part of Paul's regular preaching. He told them before, he says, and now he's telling them again. He reminds them, these are not the works of people who are in the Spirit. These are not how sons of God, these are not how people who are united to Christ live. If you and your community look a lot like this, he says, not now and not in the future will you be part of the kingdom of God. On the other hand, he gives us hope as he lists the fruit of the Spirit. In verses 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The works of the flesh are the, the community standards and the relations of the old world fruit of the Spirit is the community and the relationships in the new age of Jesus and the Spirit. So love is what we've been talking about, this kind of other-focused concern that leads to action of caring for other people. Joy is a a contentment, a pleasure in God's ways. Peace is that word maybe you've heard from the Old Testament, shalom, where everything is working together according to God's plan. Patience is an endurance in the face of hardship, a sense of long-suffering. Kindness is a helpful form of generosity. And goodness is acting, uh, interacting with others for their own welfare. Faithfulness, one of the most important words of the book of Galatians. A loyal trust and a trustworthiness. And gentleness is this humility where you are not impressed with yourself. Self-control, a restraint of your emotions, of your desires, and your actions. And what Paul calls these is the fruit of the Spirit. The way I like to remind myself of this is when I go to the grocery store and I'm looking for fruit, what section do I look in? The produce section. So what is fruit of the Spirit? It's what the Spirit produces in us. If we are in the realm of the Spirit, he will produce in Christians, he will produce in our churches these sorts of virtues. The uh, Spirit will produce them amongst us and amongst our communities. These are what the Spirit brings to Christians and to churches, and they are all contrary to that selfish biting and devouring that Paul's already described. We're not building up our own reputation or our own worth, but this is an ethical system that seeks the flourishing of other people. Now, this is not what it seems like has been happening in Galatia especially amongst that group that had come in and was demanding that people be circumcised and demanding that people follow the Old Testament law. I remember Paul called that group the troublers, the ones who are coming in and causing all this trouble. And he takes one more shot at them in the second half of verse 23. After he lists the fruit of the Spirit, he says, "...against such things there is no law." Okay, troublers, you, love, you people who love circumcision, who want to make the Galatian church look like a community of the flesh... If the law is so important to you, guess what? There is no law against any of these things. How come your community, how come you have not brought these things into the Galatian church? How come you have not made the community look like these things that there is no law against? And Paul, once again here at the end, assures us that the Spirit will be victorious. He will overcome the flesh. In verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The spirit and the flesh are at war, but the spirit has won. Any work of the flesh is too much. But remember, the flesh has been defeated. It has been crucified, Paul says, with Christ. The old world died at the cross, and the new world was born when Jesus rose from the dead. So if you are united to Christ by faith, you have been released from the flesh, and Christ and the Spirit have gripped you. And since the Spirit has brought you into the new world, he should also be how you are living in this new world. He's brought you here, and he's now your new form of life. In verse 25 and 26. And if you live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This circumcision conflict in the Galatian church was not in line with this new world way of living. It was causing pride and envy and jealousy. And those are all works of the flesh. But since the Galatians are in Christ, they must reject those works completely. They must embrace the fruit of the Spirit and value others as they are in Christ. Now, as we read that list of the works of the flesh, I'm not sure if we're talking about Rome or 21st century America. Rivalry and strife, sounds like the basis of pretty much every cable news show. Envy and jealousy, that's pretty much the foundation of all modern advertising. Idolatry and gluttony, those are the necessary conditions for our consumer economy, and Is anybody going to doubt that 99% of social media is just pure conceit? How much of Facebook and Twitter is meant to provoke other people? And how many Instagram posts are not meant to cause others to envy and be jealous of you? I do not think we should be surprised, though, that the ancient and the modern world both reject the gospel in such a similar way. When your value system requires you to build your own self up, when you can only get worth, from what you have done, by being better than others, the works of the flesh will become evident. It's not surprising that the ancient and the modern church, when they trust in the gospel, will also look the same. If we are convinced that our value is firmly secure in Jesus' eternal worth, only then can we stop competing with each other for honor. When we know that our standing with God is drawn up out of this infinite well of Christ, we can freely give ourselves away and honor others. Walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, all of these things that Paul says in this passage that means that your life is not about securing or defending yourself or even what you have earned, but about being directed at and being committed to building up other people in your community. So rest assured what Paul is saying here. If you trust in Christ, your flesh has been crucified. It has been killed at the cross. And now he is calling us to let the Spirit produce those fruits in ourselves and amongst us all. You are free from the sensuality of our society, which means you are also free to love your brothers and your sisters with a pure heart. You are free from the constant strife and competition of that old world. And that means you are free to live at peace and in harmony with God and with your community. And you are free from envy, from resentment, from the grudges of the flesh. And that also means you are free to live a life of joy in Christ and by the Spirit. The gospel has freed you from sin and freed you to love. Reading Galatians is a lot like reading the book of Exodus, isn't it? The first half is all about our liberation from slavery. The power of Pharaoh, the power of the flesh, we've been freed from it. It's all about how what God has done to free us and save us. It's a celebration of our liberty and our deliverance. The second half, though, is actually even more good news. It's an expansion. It's a, it's a growth of our freedom. Not just have our chains been broken and then we're left to ourselves. No, we have even more liberty because we've been given the freedom to love. The Old Testament law freed Israel to love God with all their heart and to love their neighbors as themselves. And we are given even more freedom in Christ. We have been united to him. We are walking with the Spirit in the new age. Our flesh has been crucified And the law is fulfilled as we love each other. The gospel has freed us, and we are free indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that freedom that we have in Christ and in Christ alone. We thank you that he has fulfilled all of your requirements on our behalf, that our righteousness, our value, our worth in your sight is based on him and him alone. We thank you that you have freed us to love one another. We ask that your spirit would be working and active and guiding and controlling our hearts, that we might express that love for our neighbors just as we love ourselves. Let us seek after Christ and therefore seek after each other. In his name and by his spirit we pray.